Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. On this episode, we have Joe Wiggins, a behavioral scientist. Joe has been running a great blog called Behavioral Investment since 2017, which we have been avid readers of. Joe sat down with Liam and Andy to discuss the importance of examining behavior when making investment decisions, including some of the common biases we have and hurdles that affect everyone in probabilistic thinking. Essentially, as rational as a creature we may hope to be, Joe discusses how behavior gaps affect everybody from private to professional investors. Okay, Joe, uh, welcome to the show. Um, very pleased to have you here. Thanks, pleasure to be on the podcast today. I'm also going to introduce uh, Liam as well, because this is Liam's first time um, being on the Value team and being on the Value podcast. So welcome, Liam. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, now, now, Joe, you, you've been running your behavioural investment blog for a, for a number of years now. And it's really focused on the behavioural biases which impact decision-making. How do you get interested in that topic and how do you get involved in that subject? Yeah, my background is relatively unusual. Um, I've met plenty of fund managers through my career and part of the narrative they often give is how they started reading the Wall Street Journal at the age of six and bought their first share when they were eight years old. Um, and my, my story is not like that at all. I had no real idea what I wanted to do as a career whilst I was at university. Um, I'd always been in- interested in human behaviour and I studied sociology as an undergrad uh, and applied for lots of different jobs coming out of university and, and happened to get a job at a small firm involved in in fund manager research so there were a range of potential paths I could have taken um, and just so happened that the investment one was the road I went on and I think there were plenty of alternate universes out there while I'm doing something completely different but I suppose at its heart fund research is all about behavior it's about the decisions we make and the behavior of markets the behavior of fund managers and the behavior of ourselves um, and often get scornful looks when I tell people what I studied as an undergrad because um, it's not the typical path to uh, a career in investment but fundamentally everything we do is about about behavior and it's just a, a hugely untapped area nobody really thinks about it or does anything meaningful about it but it's the most important thing I think we do in in our investment work um, so it's less about analytics and, uh, and information and more about uh, behavior um, so I've tried to kind of frame everything I've done in my investment career through that lens and uh, four or five years ago I took a master's in behavioral science at, at the LSE and then started writing a blog after that to try and bring together some of those academic learnings with what I was experiencing and observing on a, on a day-to-day basis. And you've been writing about behavioral biases for many years. Your blog on behavioralinvestment.com is a treasure trove of thought-provoking pieces and, and insights. Looking back over the years, 
there are some topics and biases which reoccur, reoccur more frequently on your blog than others. Um, so what do you think are the most common and potentially damaging behavioral issues? Yeah, good question. I often worry that my blog is repeating the same topics over and over again, but I suppose in a way that's what it should be doing because they're so important to, to investment outcomes and, and need to be reiterated, but perhaps in, in different ways with different stories to, to highlight them. Um, I think probably five behavioural issues that I come across more than, than any other. Uh, and, and just to run down those very quickly, one is time horizons and the fact that people have, and investors have incredibly short time horizons, even when they have very long run objectives and that dissonance creates a real problem in, in decision making. Uh, the next is outcome bias, which I think is particularly pertinent in in fund research and fund selection, given how much performance chasing there is, uh, and the outcome bias problem of assuming that good results means that there's a good process or, or skill behind it. Um, so that's an, an ever-present problem in, in fund manager research. Overconfidence is another incredibly common one in thinking that we're, we're better than we are and taking decisions where, where the odds are not in our favour. Uh, action bias is just being um, too too frequent in our activities, too much, uh, too much trading, uh, and there's a real stigma in the industry around doing nothing, even when it's the most sensible decision um, that we should be making. And finally, a conflation of two different things really: one is recency, and the other is extrapolation. So we tend to think what's happened in our recent memories will persist in our future. So make many of our decisions around what has been working uh, in in recent times, in recent years, um, uh, rather than consider the fuller body of evidence and the fact that things change based on a range of different factors. And do you think that any of the behavioural issues that you encounter are unique to fund investing or do you come across these biases in all walks of life? I think generally speaking that there are a consistent set of biases but they might be amplified in, in certain areas and certain disciplines. There's one area actually in one fairly specific behavioural issue in fund investing where it's has a different direction to that of uh, stock picking or or, uh, company selection that's the disposition effect so that's the disposition effect is the idea that people um, investing in stocks tend to um, cut their winners and and run their run their losers because they don't want to crystallize their their losses and admit error but there's a paper which i think argues quite well that fund investors experience a reverse disposition effect whereby they're much more willing to cut their losing positions and run their winners and i think this is because when they sell their losers, uh, they apportion blame on the fund manager rather than themselves. So it was their mistake, uh, not mine, uh, whilst taking credit for the things that perform well. And this is fairly consistent with the performance chasing behaviour of fund investors who tend to um, almost inevitably invest in funds with strong past performance and strong recent performance and abandon those those managers or strategies that have been, that have been struggling. Can we uh, delve and explore into a couple of those things on on the list that you mentioned before? I th- think your second one was outcome bias, um, and this is actually something we chatted to Annie Duke about. You know, she, she refers to it as resulting, um, and it, obviously, as you say, it's something that's pretty prevalent in the financial industry. But when you think about this, is it the case that people don't want to think in probabilities, or is there something? which actually makes people believe that the only outcome was the one which happened. And so the state of the world was always going to be that way. When you think about that, how do you think about it? Yeah, first of all, I'd say that everyone in the investment industry should read both of 
any Duke's books because I make much better decisions if they do. Um, probabilities is, is a fascinating topic. I think nobody likes the talking probabilities and everyone recalls in horror at the use of probabilities. Um, people just think you're being spuriously precise when you use probabilities. How can you be 57% sure of something? Or they think that you're just hedging your bets and you don't really have a, a strong conviction view. Um, and the other point is that after the event, after something happens, everything is binary. You're either right or wrong. So rather than people thinking of history being a range of possible paths that could have occurred, uh, it just looks like an arrow and everything that happened in the past was destined to be so and also pretty obvious. So after the event, it feels obvious. Um, so when we're making judgments about the future, it should be obvious as well. It should be certain. It should be either this direction or that direction. Um, I think there's a probably an industry issue as well that most people in investment are trying to, to sell something. And to sell generally, you need to be confident if you're talking in probabilities uh, and the next person is talking in certainties and that person is more likely to win the business because you just didn't seem that sure of yourself. So there's a range of issues that come together to make it actually very rare for people to express themselves in probabilities explicitly, even if fundamentally everyone's always talking in, in probabilistic terms, um, even if they're not explicit about that. And for me, the beauty of probabilities is threefold. One, that it immediately highlights uncertainty. So as soon as you use probability to describe something, then you're saying the future is inherently uncertain. Um, it allows for comparison, so comparison through time with a conviction in your, in your view on something and comparison across different people and what that view might be. And it also just paves the way for allowing you to change your mind. If you say that X is going to happen and frame it as a certainty, then it's really difficult to change your mind because you're so committed to that view. But if you say something is or has a probability of 60%, it's much easier to revise that because at the outset you're saying, well, this is uncertain uh, and you're leaving yourself open to, to change your mind. So they absolutely should be used more than they are. Uh, but I'm not, not particularly optimistic they will be. You touched on the topic of overconfidence there, and you know, investors you, you tend to see them being overconfident because they're they're trying to sell something. Um, how do you tackle that issue when you come face to face with overconfidence? Yeah, and I think it's everywhere in the industry. And um, overconfidence is a, a prevalent problem. And if you look at how most investors behave, then. There's always some element of tactical allocation or market timing or economic forecasting involved in the decision-making um, of investors. And in both cases, so whether you're forecasting or trying to market time, you're attempting to predict a complex adaptive system, which feels like a pretty difficult thing to do. And added to that, there's, there's no evidence that many people get it right on a consistent basis at all. But the majority of investors are, are involved in these activities. So even if it's something they think they have to do because they're selling and if everyone else is selling the same thing, it doesn't look great if you say, well, I don't really have a view on this or I can't do it. Or they're just overconfident and they think they're exceptional relative to the evidence. Um, so I think a good way to think about it is just to break overconfidence down into different elements. And there's some research, I think, by Don Moore where he splits into um, three distinct categories. So you've got overestimation. So that's when we think we're more skillful than we are, so we think we think we can we can time markets, and we we are very skillful. Uh, it doesn't matter that markets are fiendishly complex and difficult to predict in the short term. Um, there's overplacement, which just means we we think we're better than other people, and that's the classic case of how many people in the room think they're better than 
above average driver. And I imagine you get the same with a, with a group of fund managers as well. Um, and then the final one is over precision. And that comes back again to the, the issue of probabilities and that we're, we're certain that the answer is correct. So we're far too confident and precise in our own forecast relative to what is realistic. So I think breaking it down in that way is quite useful when we look at other investors and the decisions that they make, but also when we're trying to calibrate our own decision-making, because we're all vulnerable to these same these same issues. So if you think about what types of overconfidence we might be vulnerable to, then at least we can try and temper it in some way. And, and just jumping back very quickly to, to the idea of outcome bias and resulting, you know, we, we often get uh, questions from clients where they want us to identify the biggest mistakes we've made. And whenever we're asked that question, you know, it's very natural for us to automatically leap to thinking about a negative outcome as opposed to something which examines the quality of decision-making process behind the investments, which is probably where the mistake really actually did happen. Did, did you have any thoughts on how investors can hope to learn from past mistakes without falling into this kind of trap of, of focusing on outcomes? Yeah, good question. I think the key issue here is a, a definitional one. So what constitutes a mistake? I think it seems easy, like most things in investment, it seems easy, it's just underperformance. I don't really think that makes sense. So let's say you are a highly skilled investor with a, a 60% hit rate in very simple terms. So 100 decisions, you'll get 40 of them which don't work out or, or underperform. So do we think they're mistakes or are they just simply an expected feature of a process? Um, and I think focusing on those known errors, known mistakes um, entirely is a is the wrong way to go about assessing your process or the quality of a of a decision. So I think the first thing you must do is review all decisions, but the good ones and the bad ones are the ones that had good outcomes and the ones that are bad outcomes. There'll be some great decisions in there that had bad outcomes and vice versa. So you need to try to avoid viewing them through the lens of, of the outcome alone. And the key questions I think you should be asking yourself when you're reviewing the decision is, did we follow the process? Did we miss anything? And should we adjust the process because of the learnings that we have, uh, irrespective of, of the outcome? That was generated. We should definitely avoid a situation where we're making significant changes to a process based on a sample of one, particularly if that negative outcome is in line with what you might expect from the type of investment strategy that you that you have. And I think the fundamental problem with mistakes is that people say that, well, 55% or 60% is enough to make you a great investor. But nobody really acts like that when they're observing investors. They act like it must be 100%. Um, so key for me is just reviewing all decisions against the process that you have and then assessing whether you need to adjust the process because you think there's long-run limitations um, in that process. It's somewhat related to outcome bias in many ways, but you also mentioned neglecting time horizon as a, as a big issue. I think you did a brilliant post a while back where you listed the 50 reasons why we struggle to invest for the long term. If you, if you had to narrow down that list somewhat, what do you think are the key reasons that, that the investment profession has become overly focused on short time horizon? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably the most important thing for most investors is thinking about time horizons and, and dealing with that problematic disparity between short-term considerations and long-term objectives. And at its heart within the industry, there's a, there's a major incentive alignment problem. I think it's particularly for asset managers who are listed on the stock market, but not exclusively so. So if you're listed on the stock market and you're being judged on 
short-term performance inflows and outflows each quarter, is it really possible that you're creating an environment that's productive and conducive to long-term investment decision-making? I think the answer is pretty obvious to that question. So there's a structural problem there with how asset managers are assessing the, the results of their business and what that means for um, how they might incentivize fund managers, the environment they might create for investors. I think fund managers have a have a stated time horizon and a, and a real time horizon. So the stated one will be uh, what they put on slides when they're presenting to uh, to investors or what might be in their investment philosophy. But the real one is what drives behaviour, and it might be how their bonus is paid, or because their fund is in outflow, or because they need to improve short term performance because they're under pressure uh, from their bosses, or they're under threat of losing their job and are trying to manage um, manage career risk. Um, and the the odds of the the odds of the game change materially when you alter the time horizon. So when you have those short time horizons, you just really become beholden to, to randomness. Um, so let me, let me let me ask you a question from, from a time horizon perspective. Uh, Liam or Andy, you can answer this one. So what do you think the chances are of the MSCI world producing a positive return tomorrow? I'm going to go for 50-50, Joe. Okay, what about over one month? Um, I I don't think I would uh, be able to venture too far away from 50-50. One year? Maybe. We're starting to get into where equity return should should work over the longer term. So maybe I, I might be a bit more optimistic. Maybe I, I might push it up to 55 or something like that, 60. 10 years? Yeah, I think I think you're, you're looking for quite a high probability by the time you get that point. I think in your in kind of previous samples, there's not going to be many 10-year periods where you, you would have lost money. So... Yeah, probably towards the 80-90% mark there. Yeah, that's right. So the, the odds of the game change materially when we alter our time horizon. And if you think about the luck and skill spectrum, investing moves along that spectrum depending on the time horizon that you're using. So one day is just a lottery. And over 10 years, depending on what you're thinking about, then the odds move in your favour and it becomes much more e easy to make accurate, broad forecasts about what might happen for certain elements of it. Um, so I have no idea what will happen in markets over over one year. Uh, and I have no idea why so much time is spent um, by investors, by asset managers, talking to clients about what's happening in markets today, tomorrow, last week, um, because it's creating all of the wrong uh, behavioural impulses. Um, and it's based on things that we just cannot predict. One thing I find deeply frustrating is the fact that investors – professional investors spend so much time looking for edges and advantages and a long-term investment horizon is this glaring and available edge, but nobody really is willing or able to take it because of how the industry has evolved. So it seems like there's a huge opportunity to firms who can be bold and state that we want to be long-term investors. This is what we care about and why, and this is what we don't care about. And, and this is how we've structured our environment to be good long-term investors. It would be a, a clear and obvious edge but it's just very difficult um, for anyone to exploit that, given how the industry has has evolved. And if anything, we're becoming more myopic than, than more long term. So there's a somewhat ironically a massive advantage and a massive edge for private investors relative to professional investors, because they can take sensible decisions at the start and stick with them um, and take a long term horizon without any of the short term pressures faced by professional investors. So um, private investors will those they might not know it, have a, have a massive advantage in terms of time horizons and a long-term investment approach compared to most um, 
professional investors who operate a much narrower time horizons. And do you think that professional fund investors are inherently biased towards action and activity today? And, and if so, why is that a problem? Yeah, that's definitely a related problem. And again, particularly for professional investors. So there's, there was a study um, about action bias, which looked at penalty kicks in, in football and goalkeepers tended to dive left or right and they would be better off just standing still. So they have more chance of saving the penalty if they were standing still, but they look worse if they stand still and the ball goes to the left or right of them because it looks like they didn't even try. It's not, not a perfect study, but the concept of action bias is right. And there's similar themes here uh, to what we see in the, the investment industry. But doing not, nothing is so often the best course of action for investors to take, particularly if they've got a long run horizon. But because markets are active, because they're chaotic, because they move, because there's so many narratives, it presumes that we must also be active as well. Like something has happened, why aren't you doing something about it? There's been multiple occasions on my career in my career when there's been some major event and lots of people I work with pontificating about how we should navigate it. And then when I um, pipe up and say, well, we should probably do nothing because we have no edge or insight here, you tend to get looks of contempt. So there's often a, a dissonance between what's good for your career or what sells and what is a good investment decision. I think you only need to look at what happened, was it March 2020, around the onset of, of COVID in, in the UK and the US and the, the savage share price falls uh, allied to an unprecedented economic stop, huge amount of investor activity there. Um, and it felt like a fantastic time to, to sell everything, to de-risk. Um, it was just a temptation to make a truly terrible decision, one that would have been costly in the short term and compounded to be a, a horrendous decision over, over the long long term. And there's always a temptation in markets to do things which feel good in the short term. They feel good when you do them, but um, come at a great great cost. So you, you repent at leisure with the, the decisions that you make that feel good at the time. Um, and I always think that these the crises that we face as investors, which often look like a blip from a from a long-term horizon, they tend to define your investment outcomes, not because of the crisis itself, but because of what you do during them. So the mistakes you make during those periods of emotion and stress tend to have a huge bearing um, on your long-run investment outcomes. But again, the whole thing comes back to, if you're trying to sell something, um, then you need to be active. You need to prove you're doing something to justify the fees that you're you're charging, even if that's the opposite of a sensible course of action for investors. So there needs to be a lot more willingness to, to just talk to clients and to educate them about the benefits of taking a long-term approach and what that means uh, and creating an environment where you can take those types of long-term approaches. You, you're not compelled compelled to action um, during difficult market events. Yeah, that, that's certainly something which chimes with us. Um, you know, We have a saying on the team, which we probably stole from somewhere else, but uh, you know, you make all your money in a bear market. You just don't realise it at the time. So the quality of decision making at that point in time is, is very important. Um, now, now, Joe, it feels as though people are a lot more aware of behavioural biases and and kind of a behavioural edge in investment. You know that everyone's read Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman, um, and other behavioural uh, finance books. Do, do you think that the way the industry deals with behavioural biases today? is very different from how it has been in the past. Has it, has it changed much? 
Um, I think in one way it has in that people talk about it more, but in another way it hasn't in that people don't really do anything material about it, uh, speaking in general terms here. Um, I don't see huge evidence of, of people taking meaningful steps in designing investment processes or decision-making frameworks where behaviour is, is paramount. I think the first thing that investors should be doing in creating a robust investment process is creating that environment where you can make good, consistent decisions. So you need to make sure that behaviour is embedded in everything you do and be realistic about the, the behavioural implications of any changes that you might make to a process. You always need to ask when you're adjusting a process, when you're getting a new piece of information, when you're changing systems, when you're changing the way you might look at information, how will this affect our behaviour? Uh, the slightest thing can have quite significant implications for, for our behaviour. Um, and one thing I think about quite a lot is certainly for private investors is that they've gained a lot more control and transparency around their investments um, over the last decade because of technolo technological enhancements, which optically is a is a wonderful thing. Um, you want them to have clear sight of what they're invested in and be able to monitor it and change it. But it comes at a, a great behavioural cost because it gives you the opportunity to engage with markets every day, to be active, as we've already talked about, and to make changes at the worst possible time. So there's always behavioural consequences to, to the changes we make in, in our investment environment, and we don't think about them enough. Um, and people often just don't think that behavioural issues apply to them. They always think they're making rational decisions based on the information at hand. Uh, so it's really hard to get strong self-awareness of some of these issues. Um, and if you look across the industry, actually, you see things like regulations being changed to improve client outcomes. And they have good intentions, but clearly no thought whatsoever has been given uh, to the behavioural implications. And a lot of the changes we see are often linked to, well, that'll make people more short term and that'll make them trade more frequently which is really not a path we want to be going down. So I think, frustratingly, there's a lot of lip service paid to behaviour, but probably not anywhere near enough action. And I mean, you you highlighted at the start that a lot of the biases that you write about reoccur a lot of the time across the finance industry. Do you have thoughts as to what we could do to improve decision-making in the industry? If you had a magic wand and you could do one thing to improve decision-making, what would it be? If I'd imagine you want to probably try and restrict the amount of investment decisions that people could make. Um, so I think that the frequency of activity is, is a massive problem, which feeds into the myopia we've already talked about. Um, so checking checking portfolios less, checking markets less, um, it's not something that professional investors can, can reasonably do, unfortunately, but it's something definitely that private investors can do. So just change the, the frequency with which you engage with your with your portfolio and with markets because uh, there's a huge amount of noise coming from markets and not a lot of it material in terms of your long-run investment outcomes but behavior should just be front and center of, of what any investor does when they're creating an environment to make decisions um, so you need to understand your objectives you need to understand your, what your edge or advantage might be and the broader question i think the industry is how do we create incentive structures for for asset managers, for fund managers, that is aligned to the long-term goals of most of the investors rather than to the goals of, of shareholders of the market or, or um, next quarter's result. But that's, I mean, that's not, that's not an easy problem to solve. 
No, and unfortunately, none of us have that magic wand to actually uh, bring these changes into reality. Um, changing gears slightly and actually returning to a topic that you mentioned earlier, um, a controversial topic, or at least it is whenever me and Evo discuss it, and that's uh, that's football. Um, I believe that you have a high conviction view that an example of a really poor decision-making process was the appointment of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as a manager of Man United. And um, as a United fan for whom Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is something close to a demigod, that's not necessarily something that I really want to hear. Um, so why do you think it was a good example of a really poor decision? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic example and quite analogous to certain investment decisions we make as well. Um, so just for context, for those who don't know, Manchester United are one of the most successful football teams in English history and one of the most valuable sports clubs in the world. Um, so in late, in late 2018, I think it's about halfway through the season, uh, they sacked their manager, Jose Mourinho, uh, after a poor run of form. And on a, on a temporary basis, they put um, a man called Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in charge. So he had no great managerial pedigree. Uh, quite underwhelming managerial experience, but was a, a hero at the club from his from his playing days, as we've already heard. And he had a, an instant impact. So he won 14 of his first 19 games in charge. And um, with 10 games to go over the season, he was given the permanent job, from temporary manager to permanent manager, and he still holds the job to this day. Um, and this was objectively a terrible decision, even without a view on Solskjaer's management abilities. And why was that? Because they made a judgment based on a small bias sample and got wrapped up in a narrative around him and around this specific case um, when there was no need to do so. So the worst part of the, the decision was that they still had 10 games to go with his temporary contract. Um, so they had a free hit observing a, a larger sample than they had of his managerial capabilities. But they decided that his initial results were so good that they didn't even need to look at a larger sample uh, to make the commitment to him for the for the long term. Um, there's a few things going on here, but obviously when when a manager is sacked, or any or a coach is sacked, any sports team, by definition, they're often on a poor run of form. Uh, so when someone new comes in, uh, a caretaker or a permanent manager or coach, we often see an upturn in, in fortunes. And that can be just pure mean reversion because they've come off a unusually bad run of form. Uh, it could just be random fluctuations in performance or it can be they had a hard run of matches and now they've got an easy run of matches so their results improve. Um, but when we have those, those small biased samples, it's really easy to make terrible decisions um, and they're always compounded by narratives. So if there's a strong story linked to a positive small sample, that's a, that's a toxic combination. So there's this narrative around Solskjaer being a hero at Manchester United as a player, and now over a very short time period, he's turned around the fortunes of a, of a struggling team. Um, but they ignored the fact it was a very small sample. There was no evidence of him being a skillful manager and the fact they could have waited and had a longer sample before making that decision. So even if he'd gone on to be a successful manager for Manchester United, which he may do in the future, uh, he hasn't yet, but it would still be a bad decision. Uh, so irrespective of of the outcome, it's a bad decision. And I think actually this scenario is, is very similar to what we see often in the investment world, particularly around things like thematic ETFs. So we see these ETFs launch and they're based on a, on a back test. 
relatively short back test of some in vogue investment theme that's been working over the last couple of years. And obviously, because it's performed well, there's a fantastic story that can be attached to it. So investors are, again, beguiled by a combination of a small sample, of small biased positive sample, and a fantastic narrative. And then when the ETS launch, the, the returns tail off significantly. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to see here in both um, the investment world and the sports world about how um, outcome bias, narratives, small bias samples can all combine to lead us to make some some pretty poor decisions. Thanks very much, Joe. And for, for what it's worth and for the record, I, I'm with you on the Solskjaer decision, um, and I'm going to tell Liam that very regularly. Um, but now, now I'm, I'm going to turn the tables and um, we can towards our signature question. So we want to hear about your Solskjaer uh, decision. So what, what's your biggest mistake that was down to a poor process rather than just the outcome which came about? Yes, I've got one, I've got plenty of these, but I've got one that is both a poor process and a poor outcome, um, which I'm sure I misremember in many ways because I think it was back in 2009. Um, but most of the salient points I think I can recall. So this was, so I was working as an investment manager, um, a private client, in wealth manager, and it was in the midst of the financial crisis, so probably around January 2009. I remember uh, we made this decision in our portfolios to sell high-yield bonds uh, and replace it with cash and quality bonds. So I think the spread level of high-yield bonds at this time must have been, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 plus over. So historically high spread levels when we sold high-yield bonds. When we were trying to make relatively long-term investment decisions. So this is, for me, this is a classic inside view, outside view problems, um, and where we massively overweighted the inside view and either ignored or underweighted the outside view. So the inside view here was the world is ending, the financial system's in meltdown, default rates are going to be at record highs, don't want to be holding junk bombs in this type of environment. And that was overwhelming. I think at periods of stress in particular, the inside view can become incredibly, incredibly powerful uh, when you tie it up with the emotions and the pressures you're, you're feeling at that at that moment. So that was the inside view, which inevitably dominated our decision making. The outside view, so what general lessons should we be learning about this type of situation from history? The outside view was spreads at those levels have historically and very consistently been a great time to invest in in high yield bonds, extreme valuations, stress market conditions, um, potentially locking in very high returns for the future. Um, but that just got either overwhelmed or ignored by, um, I suppose, the salience of the inside view, which again is particularly strong, I think, at times of stress. So that was an objectively bad decision. And then I think a bad process that I, that didn't start with. So you start you should start your investment decision making always with the outside view. Think about base rates, and you might want to adjust it for the inside view. Don't start it with the inside view because I think it will lead you to making poor decisions uh, often when the odds are, are stacked against you. Thanks very much for for sharing that, Mr. Joe. And then our, our final question, which we ask all our guests, you know, as avid readers on the. Uh, on on the value team, We're always looking out for good book recommendations. Um, have you got any for us? Yeah, so a couple of related things here. One is one is not a book, um, but hopefully you get the link. So the first 
thing, which is not a book, is a speech given by Andy Haldane, who was, I think, Chief Economist for the Bank of England. He gave it in Jackson Hole in 2012, and it's called The Dog and the Frisbee. Um, so this is about the fact that um, in complex systems, simple rules, simple heuristics, simplicity generally in decision-making can be much more effective than complexity. So the dog and the frisbee point is, how does a dog catch a frisbee without applying or knowing Newton's law of gravity? It's because they run at a speed to keep the angle close to constant. So it's a simple heuristic, a rule of thumb rather than a complex calculation. Um, and I'm very much a believer in the idea that layering complexity on complexity as investors are often want to do is a very bad idea. And I think there's a general tendency in investment, both because complexity sells really well and you can charge for it, and also because our reaction to complex markets is to say, well, we need complex solutions. Uh, I think simplicity is grossly undervalued in decision-making and in investments generally. And this this leads me to my, my book recommendation, um, because I think Haldane was probably inspired uh, by uh, this person. So my recommendation is Gut Feelings by Gerd Gigerenza. So Gigerenza is generally framed as the, the anti-Daniel Kahneman because he had a lot of sparring with Kahneman and Tversky and talked a lot about simple heuristics whilst Kahneman was criticising uh, system one thinking. And whilst they're not analogous, uh, parallels can be drawn. So Gigerenza's talks a lot about risk and risk perception, but also about how we can use simple heuristics in life and how they're much more effective in many cases than more complex solutions. Uh, and I think in the investment world, which is full of complexity and unnecessary complexity, there's a lot to be said for making rules and decision-making frameworks as simple as is reasonable. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for the recommendation. And we've now come to the end uh, of our chat. It's been fantastic chatting to you, Joe. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.